legendary ghost story about a British soldier who was murdered at the inn. And some people say that they can still hear or see evidence of his spectral presence in between its 300-year-old walls. Hey, Twisters, what's up? Welcome back to Twisted Philly, the podcast dedicated to my favorite twisted stories about the city of brotherly love and Pennsylvania. So, summer is O-V-E-R over. I spent last week in Cape May, New Jersey. We got so lucky with the weather, the sixth friggin' Philly heat wave didn't hit until we were leaving town and heading home. I freaking love Cape May. My daughter and I visit so much in the off-season that our time there in August is starting to feel like that's the off-season. I cannot wait to go back in October for the Lima Bean Festival. Yeah, I said Lima Bean. It's an unloved vegetable except for me and the few hundred people that go to the Lima Bean Festival every year. I'm actually glad summer is coming to an end because that means fall is right around the corner. I love fall. I love Halloween. I love the significant uptick in twisted shit during the season of The Witch. We'll probably have some bonus episodes around Halloween about twisted events and celebrations around the city. We'll just have to see what I get up to. Thank you for listening to episode two, Mutter Butter. I loved recording that episode the entire time. I'm like, I've got to get back to the Mutter Museum. I have to give Twisted Philly what ups to my mom. My mom is not a fan of anything creepy or scary. She is definitely not a fan of true crime. So when she asked me, what are you doing? What's a podcast? I didn't think she would listen. I warned her not to listen to the first episode about the corpse collector but I thought Mutter Butter might be tame enough for my mom. And damn if she didn't listen, so what up, mom? Uh, A few more what ups this week. What up to Brooke V in the podcast group who asked for people to send her their links to podcast merchandise. Lady, you rock. Thank you for having everyone's back and helping us promote our shows and our products. Women helping women is where it's at. Another what up to my friend Jelly. She is a dear friend who had a baby shower this weekend. And Jelly is getting a what up for listening to the first five minutes or so of episode one. She is terrified of anything twisted. And the last thing she wants to hear about are serial killers or museums with skeletons. And Jelly hung in on the Corpse Collector episode for maybe the first few minutes until I started talking about corpses. So what up to Jelly. My final what up this episode is to Alex. Alex, I should have given you a what up before. I'm sorry for the delay. Alex sent me my very first fan email, and I am such a dork that I printed it out and showed it to my daughter. That vote of confidence from a total stranger was amazing, so thank you. This episode has everything in it that I like to share in this podcast, history, hauntings, and murder. That's why I'm calling it the General Wayne Trifecta. We're going to talk about the General Wayne Inn in Marion, which is a suburb along the main line just about 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Living in one of the cities that started it all, we have so many historic buildings that have been here since before the Revolutionary War. And while it was open, the General Wayne Inn was the longest operating restaurant in the United States. Now, it sits on Lancaster Avenue, again, not too far from the city of Philadelphia. It first opened in 1704 as the Wayside Inn, for travelers heading between Philadelphia and Radnor or other stops along the main line. The inn was renamed in 1797 to the General Wayne Inn after Mad Anthony Wayne. He was a brigadier general in the Revolutionary War. Mad Anthony Wayne got that name because he was a little bit crazy, but it worked. 
He was initially the colonel of the 4th Pennsylvania Regiment, and he was responsible for winning some pretty impressive battles in Pennsylvania and other parts of the Northeast. He was at the Battle of Brandywine, where he and his men launched a secret harassment campaign of the British soldiers. He led the battles of Paoli in Germantown, which I love thinking about, like going to Loft on Route 30 in Paoli and imagining a bunch of revolutionary soldiers fighting the Redcoats where I now stand shopping for cardigans. After the war, Anthony Wayne returned to Pennsylvania and then he served on the state legislature and then eventually served on Congress after he moved to Georgia. But we don't really care about what he did when he was in Georgia because this is Twisted Philly and not Twisted Georgia. But he's the General Wayne the inn is named after and I think he deserved to have a restaurant named after him for everything he did to help this country. The General Wayne Inn is one of those places that should have a sign hanging up that reads George Washington slept here because he did. And so did Ben Franklin. So did Edgar Allan Poe. Poe even wrote a few lines of The Raven while visiting the inn. And years ago, you could see his initials carved into the windowsill next to his favorite table. Again, it blows my mind that when I was younger, I ate in the same restaurant as some of our founding fathers and my favorite poet. Now, throughout its history, the General Wayne Inn was plagued with rumors of hauntings. And while some say there was a primary ghost or just a few specters haunting the inn, others have counted up to as many as 17 ghosts. And we're going to get to know some of these spectral guests. One of the earliest documented hauntings at the inn is from the mid-1800s, and it was in 1948. During an election at the inn, an employee went down to the basement to get ballots, and she reported seeing a soldier in a green uniform. This soldier is the most frequently reported ghost at the General Wayne Inn, and he is believed to be a Hessian soldier who was here fighting the British during the Revolutionary War. Now, one story goes that this soldier haunts the inn because when he died, he was stripped of his uniform and buried in his underwear. I think that story is bullshit, because if he was buried in his underwear, why does his apparition appear in full battle uniform? Obviously, I completely believe in the reports of hauntings because I find his state of undress to be the bullshit aspect of this story and not the fact that there's a ghost hanging out at the General Wayne Inn. There are reports of other Hessian soldiers as well throughout the 1900s, in addition to Wilhelm. Now, that's the Hessian that is typically seen in the basement in his green uniform. There are also stories of a tunnel that ran from the basement under the inn that was used during the Revolutionary War and reports that Wilhelm, this Hessian soldier, was killed in that tunnel, which may be the reason why he prefers to haunt the basement. Stories of hauntings became more commonplace after 1970 when the inn was purchased by a man named Martin Johnson. And Mr. Johnson was always willing to share the ghost stories of the inn with patrons and with the local news. During Mr. Johnson's time running the General Wayne Inn, there were reports of a ghost that liked to walk down the bar and blow on the back of the neck of ladies seated at the bar. He was a cheeky sort of ghost. During a seance that Mr. Martin held in 1972, two young ladies appeared who worked at the inn during the 1800s, but they never gave any indication as to the manner of their deaths or what happened to them. Another story comes from 1987, where an employee in the parking lot said that a car started running on its own. There was no driver in the car, nobody in the seat, no key in the ignition. Most of the stories of the General Wayne Inn are harmless. There's no reported activity of things flying through the air or any nefarious goings on. These ghosts seem content just to chill at the inn for the remainder of eternity. Now, growing up in suburban Philly, what I remember about the ghosts of the General Wayne Inn is the seances that Barsky from Y100 used to hold on Halloween in the mid-90s. 
oh my God, I was so mad when I didn't get a ticket to attend the seance or I couldn't take off work just to go down and linger outside hoping I could crash and just walk in. But I seem to remember one year when Barsky had a guy at the General Wayne Inn that I thought was a cop. And it wasn't really like a seance. Like there weren't people sitting around a big table with candles and shit, but it was just this guy who could see dead people. Like a grown-up and not scary version of the sixth sense. I don't know why, but I thought his name was Mike. But he wouldn't give his last name because he didn't want anyone to know that he could see dead people, especially since he was a cop, or at least I just remember or think I remember that he was a cop. Does anybody else remember the show that year? If you do, hit me up on Facebook or um, Twitter. You can find me on Facebook at Twisted Philly or on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. Okay, can I just say how much that underscore pisses me off? But I'm not going to be an asshole and bother the young woman who already grabbed Twisted Philly on Twitter without the underscore and beg her to give me her Twitter handle. Um, Okay, anyway, I digress. But if my memory about the Y100 show is right or if it's wrong, like send me a note and let me know what you remember. But it was that show where I swear the guy that Barsky had on said he saw 17 different ghosts. One was a Native American Indian. I also remember him talking about an old grumpy man sitting in a chair at a table nearby where he and Barsky were seated. Now, I'm calling this episode the General Wayne Trifecta. We covered history, and I hope that didn't bore you guys, but I freaking love early American history, especially history from Philly, so there will be dashes of history peppered in whenever I can toss it. We also covered ghosts. I love ghost stories, too. Um, The third leg of this trifecta is murder. And while I don't love murder, like you, I'm a true crime junkie. In 1995, Mr. Martin Johnson sold the General Wayne Inn to a pair of chefs, and their names were Jim Webb and Guy Saleo. Jim and Guy were restaurant tours from Delaware County. They operated a really successful restaurant in Morton, Pennsylvania, called the American Bistro. And it was known for really exotic and unusual flavor combinations. But there was a big difference between the restaurant they ran and the General Wayne Inn. These guys were used to a small place that was BYOB, and the General Wayne could handle hundreds of guests, large events, and had a liquor license. Now, I've never personally worked in restaurants, but I know people who do. I know chefs, I know line cooks, and the two words I hear all the time are passion and stress. From everything I've researched, buying the General Wayne opened the floodgates of stress for these new owners. Webb and Saleo were able to purchase the General Wayne in with help from Guy Saleo's father, in the form of a $100,000 loan, which there's questions about whether it was a loan or it was supposed to have been a gift, but ultimately the money was considered a loan and his dad expected to get paid back. Early on in 1995, the guys put considerable money in renovations in the inn. They were trying to modernize it and update the restaurant. They brought their crazy flavor combinations in from the American Bistro And that really didn't go over very well on the traditional main line. And then they canceled big band dancing on Saturday nights, which pissed off some of the older, more traditional customers. All these efforts that they expended to make the restaurant a success really just weren't paying off. So first, I'm going to talk about Jim Webb. Jim was the executive chef at the General Wayne Inn, and he was described as someone with an incredible and probably unmatched work ethic. It wasn't uncommon for him to spend 16-hour days at the restaurant often doing this seven days a week. This was a passion that started for Jim when he was a very young man, and from all accounts, he was incredibly talented as a chef. Jim was married to a woman named Robin, who also invested considerable hours at the restaurant, and together they had two young children. So this couple was doing everything they could to make the General Wayne Inn a success. 
His commitment and passion as an executive chef are also what contributed to the tension between him and his partner, Guy Saleo. Guy Saleo is described a little differently. He was more of a front man. He was more of a showman. He spent less time on the business, less time in the kitchen, less hours working. He spent a little more time fraternizing with his coworkers and his employees. Like Jim, he was married with a young child, also committed to trying to get this business to be a success. He just went about it in a very different way. So on the morning of December 27, 1996, around 7.50 a.m., Lower Marion police receive a 911 call from a woman named Betty Costanza. Betty was the pastry chef at the General Wayne Inn. Betty is hysterical. She's crying on the phone with 911, and she tells the 911 operator that they've found their executive chef dead in his office. Lower Marion detective Jim Stillwagon was called to the scene at the General Wayne Inn, and there he meets Guy Saleo, Jim Webb's partner, and Betty, the pastry chef who made the 911 call. They direct the detectives and other officers to the location of Jim's body. Now, Jim Webb's body is found on the floor of his office, on his back, which is on the third floor of the restaurant, and the police notice a bruise on his forehead. So they think, okay, he's working here late at night, he spends lots of late nights at the restaurant, he's tired, it's possibly he fell, and from that bruise it looks like he may have hit his head on the corner of a desk and suffered a head wound or a head injury and passed away quietly in his sleep alone in his office. At least at the start, there's no indication of burglary. Like, there's nothing out of place in the restaurant or in Jim's office. In fact, he even had his wallet on him. The money was still in his wallet. There's no signs of a break-in. The safe in his office is intact. All initial signs lead the police to consider this to be a death, either by natural causes or an accident. Until the forensics team shows up. So the forensic detectives are called in, and that's when everything changes. They begin to examine Jim's body and they find a small bullet hole on the back of Jim Webb's skull. So immediately the tone of everything shifts within a matter of minutes. This is no longer a death by natural causes. This is no longer an accidental death. This is homicide. This is a murder. Immediately the detectives in that room agree not to share the cause of death. And that's business as usual, right? I mean, you hear this so many times in murder investigations, the police hold back key clues that only the killer would know. Now, at this hour in the morning before 8 o'clock, there are very few employees on site besides Betty and Guy Saleo. The police start questioning the people that are there. They start with Betty. She explained that she arrived at work shortly before 8 a.m. She saw Jim's truck, but she didn't see Jim anywhere. And next, they question Guy Saleo, Jim's partner. Guy says that when he arrived at the restaurant, Betty told him she couldn't find Jim. Guy Saleo went up to Jim's office on the third floor. He's the one who found the body. He tells Betty to call 911, and basically the police know the rest. Now, gradually, as the investigation progresses that morning, employees start to arrive, but they're not allowed inside the restaurant. One of them calls Jim Webb's wife, Robin, which I guess makes sense. You, you get to work. You can't get in. No one's telling you why you can't go in. There's yellow crime scene tape everywhere. So if you know the boss's wife and you have her number, yeah, it makes sense to go ahead and call her. Of course, Robin has no idea what's going on, so she and her husband's father head to the restaurant. Now, she has no idea if he ever came home the night before, and, and that was really typical because Jim would work 16 to 18-hour days at the restaurant. He would be so exhausted that sometimes he would sleep there, or when he came home, he wouldn't wake up Robin, and if there were days when she was closing the restaurant, the same thing would happen. She would come home, and she wouldn't wake up Jim. So she has no idea whether he's been home or not. When she gets to the General Wayne Inn, she and her father demand to know what's going on, and the police tell her that her husband is deceased. Her 31-year-old, young, handsome, brilliant chef husband 
is dead. So now the police have the job of figuring out who murdered Jim Webb. Because of the position of the injury, and I'm sorry, I can't stand saying bullet hole, like it's just too horrible. Um, the police thought his murder could only be one of two things. And one was an execution, which is total bullshit. There was no criminal activity in Jim's background, no connection to the mob, no real reason to think that somebody would want to execute him. So the other option is that somebody he knew shot him when his back was turned. Somebody came to his office, someone he knew, he opened the door, wasn't afraid or surprised, turned around, and when his back was turned, he got shot in the back of the head. And remember, this is a 300-year-old building we're talking about. So it's not like walking into a modern-day restaurant with back offices. You've got to go down tight halls, turn tight corners, up narrow wooden staircases that creak with every tread that you step on to get to back rooms. So getting to Jim's office wouldn't have been easy if you didn't intimately know the interior of the General Wayne Inn. If Webb was shot, he had to have been shot by someone who knew exactly where his office was. So while Robin Webb, Jim's wife, is standing outside the inn with the police, like out of her mind over what she's been told, Guy Saleo, Jim's partner, comes outside to console her and he says something to the effect of, why would anyone want to shoot Jim? He basically says that Jim was shot. Now, how the fuck would he know that, considering the police intentionally withheld that information from employees? They withheld that information from anyone outside of the office upon discovering Jim's body. Through their investigation, the police learn of the tension between Jim Webb and his partner, Guy Saleo. And it wasn't only the hours that Jim put in and Guy's lack of commitment that was the source of the turmoil between the two of them. Although Guy was married with a young child, he was having a relationship with a very young sous chef who worked at the restaurant, a young lady by the name of Felicia Moise. And it was pretty common knowledge among most of the restaurant staff that this was happening. Felicia was only 20 years old. She was a recent graduate from the restaurant school of Philadelphia. And Jim was very vocal about his disappointment with this relationship. Guy was married. Felicia was a young kid, obviously making, you know, immature decisions. And before anybody starts jumping on this girl or judging her for dating a married man, think about yourself when you were 20. Think about some of the dumb shit that you did, some of the dumb shit that I did. Okay, maybe you weren't involved with someone who was married, but if you grew up in the 80s like me, oh my God, my friends and I still talk about like the crazy things that we did, the stupid decisions we made, the lousy relationships we found ourselves in. This young lady was infatuated with Guy Saleo, and he led her to believe that he was leaving his wife to start a life with her. And Jim wasn't comfortable with any of that. So the issues between Guy and Jim were so bad that at times it even got physical. Jim's wife, Robin, and employees of the General Wayne Inn talk about arguments between Jim and Guy on a constant basis, one in particular in Jim's office where it came to blows. And Robin, God bless her, pushed between the two of them to break up the fight. I think I would have let them beat the shit out of each other rather than risk putting myself in the middle of that brawl and taking a stray punch to the face. Jim was murdered sometime after 10 p.m. on the evening of December 26th. That's the last time anyone saw him alive. And of course, one of the last people to see him alive was Guy Saleo, his partner. Guy and Felicia were leaving the General Wayne Inn, and they were heading to a bar in Upper Darby called Mulligan's for a drink, and they tried to convince Jim to join them. So when Guy was being questioned by the police, he told the detectives that Jim was going to join him and Felicia, but he never showed up. Now, considering how Jim felt about the relationship between Guy Saleo and Felicia Moise, I think joining them for a drink was probably the last thing he wanted to do. 
Now, Guy said that he and Felicia left in his car. He gave her a lift to her car, which was across the street from the inn, and then they headed to Mulligan's. On the way there, Felicia stopped at a friend's house. Guy continued on to the bar, and Felicia met him there a little before 11 o'clock. They had one drink, and when Jim Webb didn't show up, they left. Both Guy Saleo and Felicia Moist took polygraph tests. Felicia passed without issue. Guy's results, on the other hand, were inconclusive. Guy Saleo initially wasn't the only person of interest. I mean, Lower Marion Police continued investigating. They questioned anyone and everyone connected to Jim Webb, connected to the General Wayne Inn. They looked at vendors. They looked at customers. They looked at former and current employees. They looked at family members. But gradually, that suspect list cleared and became reduced to one person, and that one person was Guy Saleo. Guy did have an alibi for the night of Jim's murder. The bartender at Mulligan's confirmed the time that he arrived, but there was a period of time where he was not at the bar and Felicia wasn't following him in her car. And that's what the police jumped on. They timed it, and there was more than enough time for him to double back to the General Wayne Inn, shoot Jim Webb, and get to Mulligan's bar before Felicia arrived. Now, growing up in suburban Philadelphia, I know this area. I know the General Wayne Inn. I've been there. I know the routes that someone could take to get from there to Mulligan's. And personally, I agree with the police, especially at that time of night, the day after Christmas, there is no one on the road. So Guy Saleo had opportunity, but did he have motive? Um, I say hell yes. So remember, his father loaned him and Jim Webb $100,000 to buy the General Wayne Inn in addition to loans that they took out. Well, his father was impatient and he wanted that money back. But the restaurant was in such serious debt between the renovations they did and the purchase price and then the decline in customers since the restaurant changed hands, they were in serious financial trouble. Now, there's something Guy may or may not have known at the end of 1996, and that was that Jim Webb and his wife Robin had made the decision that they would walk from the General Wayne Inn in the new year. The stress, the amount of debt, the fighting between Jim and Guy and the level of effort that Jim had to invest in this restaurant without getting even met halfway by Guy Saleo had just become too much for them. And Jim and his wife agreed it was time to leave. So we've got opportunity. We've got motive. But where the hell is the murder weapon? And there was an important piece of evidence in Jim Webb's office, the shell from the bullet that killed Jim landed in a cash register tray on his desk, and that shell was from a 25 caliber gun. Now, police learned that both Jim and Guy owned firearms. Sometimes they kept them in the restaurant. You know, they'd be making large deposits late at night, and they had the guns for protection. As it turned out, one of the guns that Guy owned was a 25 caliber gun. It was a Phoenix Arms handgun. Yeah, I got that description um, straight from a news article because I don't know shit about guns. But bam, 25 caliber bullet casing, 25 caliber gun owned by Guy Saleo, case closed. Yeah, if only it was that fucking easy, but it's not because the ballistics from the bullet that killed Jim Webb don't match Guy Saleo's gun. The Lower Marion police worked tirelessly to try to find the murder weapon, but they came up empty. And when I tell you they were looking in cemeteries, they were looking anywhere and everywhere that somebody could hide a gun anywhere in the area of Lower Marion. I mean, these guys, they really outdid themselves. Um, and it's unfortunate that they weren't able to locate the murder weapon. But they began to wonder if maybe Guy owned any unregistered firearms. And after revisiting employees, they learned that Guy did have another 25 caliber gun, and it wasn't registered to him. It was actually a Beretta from World War II that originally belonged to one of Guy's family members. 
So, you know, we move on into the new year. It's 1997. The restaurant reopens. And talk about awkward. Robin Webb, Jim's widow, is now partners with Guy, the man who eventually becomes a suspect in her husband's murder. She can see there's no way that this restaurant is going to turn around, and she wants to sell it. But Guy is determined to try to make things work, despite the enormous tragedy and the huge decline in business. Everyone at the General Wayne Inn is reeling from Jim's death, and then just about a month or so later, they get hit again. On February 22, 1997, the beautiful young sous chef, Felicia Moise, Guy Saleo's girlfriend, was found dead in her parents' home. The coroner ruled it a suicide, but growing up in the area, there were disputed theories over the years about what really happened to Felicia. Out of respect for her family, I'm not going to share any of the details of her death. Um, she had recently graduated from the Restaurant School of Philadelphia in December 1996. She studied cooking in Paris. She'd recently moved into her own apartment. I mean, these just don't seem like the actions of a young woman who is ready to take her life. Um, but right after Jim Webb's murder, Guy ended his relationship with Felicia and went back to his wife, even though he led Felicia to believe he was going to leave his wife for her. My personal feeling is that if Felicia Moise hadn't gotten mixed up in a relationship with Guy Saleo, this beautiful young woman with so much potential and opportunity ahead of her would still be alive today. Now, just a few months after Felicia's suicide, police catch a break. A former employee of the General Wayne Inn, somebody named Jeremy Bennett, comes forward with information about that World War II Beretta that Saleo owns. Jeremy agrees to wear a wire and have a conversation with Saleo under the pretense that police are questioning him about the gun. So he does. And I'm going to play a clip from that conversation for you. The audio is rough. It sounds like they're outside the restaurant. You can hear passing cars. But you get the idea of what this conversation was like. Mr. Saleo. I I was in there for two hours, about three days ago. They kept breaking my balls, breaking my balls, about uh, the 25 in that bag. There's nothing to tell They don't, they're going, they're running on a wild goose chase. They're going to be something right now. Who has that? It never worked. I traded it for a holster, but I can't tell them that. They won't believe it. So on the tape, Guy admits that he owned another 25 caliber gun. He says he traded it for a holster, which... I don't know. I don't know anything about guns. I don't go to gun shows, but that sounds like bullshit to me. If you know things about guns and gun shows and it doesn't sound like bullshit to you, let me know. But he tells Jeremy Bennett that he traded the gun for a holster. He doesn't have it anymore. And then he admits that he lied to the police about it. But the problem is, regardless of this taped admission, there's no actual gun and the police can't bring a case to trial that doesn't have enough evidence. So a year passes, and during that time, Guy Saleo declares bankruptcy um, without alerting Robin Webb. The general weaning goes under. Guy starts working at a restaurant in Philly, and Jim Webb's family is constantly contacting Lower Marion police, asking what is going on with the case. Without a murder weapon, or a confession, or evidence besides circumstantial, it's close to impossible to bring charges against Guy Saleo, and the Lower Marion police want to make sure that they do this the right way. So they work with what they have. They have Guy Saleo's registered 25 caliber Phoenix Arms, and they have a leather gun holster. Now, at this time, the investigation is led by Detective Rich Nelson, and Detective Nelson is a curious sort of guy. He wonders 
if maybe any other gun had been carried in that holster. So he sends the holster to the FBI, and they confirm that there are two distinct gun impressions in the leather of the holster. There's an impression from the Phoenix Arms handgun, and there's an impression from a 25 caliber Beretta. And this blows me away, because I think forensic science is fascinating, and all of this work on the holster, like just checking the impressions and the placement of the impressions in the leather is what gives them the proof that they need that Guy did in fact have in his possession a 25 caliber Beretta, which is the type of gun that was used to kill Jim Webb. And then what the prosecutor does next is nuts. I mean, this guy is balls to the wall. Bruce Castor, who was the assistant DA of Montgomery County at the time, he subpoenas Guy Saleo to appear before a grand jury. And DA Castor offers Saleo immunity about the 25 caliber Beretta. So when I learned this, I was like, wait, no, no, stop, stop. Why would you do that? Okay, well, clearly the DA is smarter than me because he offers immunity about the gun. And the only way that Guy Saleo would actually get that immunity is if he tells the truth. So let's say that Lower Marine Police eventually find the murder weapon. It would be completely inadmissible because of that immunity deal. But the DA isn't expecting Guy Saleo to tell the truth. He's expecting Guy Saleo to lie, just like he's done for almost a year and a half anytime he's been questioned about owning a 25 caliber Beretta. Oh my God, like it's brilliant, but it is a huge fucking risk. It is an enormous risk. If Saleo tells the truth, nothing about that gun can ever be used in a trial. But if Saleo lies, which is what his track record has been, bam, the DA nails him on perjury and that's exactly what happened. On the stand, he lies like a rug. Nope, no other 25 caliber handgun, not mine, nope, nope, never had it, nada. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a perjury charge, which is then used in the murder charge, finally filed against Guy Saleo. And it's almost five years after Jim Webb's death when Guy Saleo finally goes to trial for his murder. The case the DA makes is easy. Only someone with intimate knowledge of the interior of the General Wayne Inn would have been able to navigate their circuitous hallways and stairwells to find Jim's office. And Jim would have only opened the door and comfortably turned his back on someone he knew. And that someone was Guy Saleo, who killed Jim Webb for the $650,000 insurance policy. On August 1st, 2001, Guy Saleo was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Jim Webb and sentenced to life in prison. Plus, he had the perjury charge from lying to the grand jury in 1998, and then he racks up a second perjury charge for lying again about his knowledge of the 25 caliber Beretta during his trial in 2001. Then in 2002, during an appeal hearing, Saleo says he did actually own another 25 caliber gun, which he kept in a drawer at the restaurant, and that his former girlfriend, Felicia Moise, must have used that gun to kill Jim Webb. He's despicable. Not only did she pass a polygraph test with, and I'm quoting the prosecution here when I say she passed with flying colors, she had an alibi for the time between leaving the General Wayne Inn the night of Jim Webb's death and the time she arrived at Mulligan's Bar in Upper Darby to meet Guy Saleo. The prosecutors again considered this another account of perjury. And I don't know how much lower this guy can go. He kills his friend and partner. He emotionally destroys a young girl's life. And then he tries to blame her for a crime that he committed after she dies. In 2010, Saleo and his attorneys filed another appeal for a new trial, 
and they said that the jury never got a complete alibi instruction. Pennsylvania Superior Court denied the appeal in 2011, and then in 2012, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court judges upheld the 2011 denial. So unless Saleo and his legal team want to take their appeal to the feds, he is out of appeals in the state of Pennsylvania and will continue serving out his life sentence. And that, my friends, is the end of the trifecta. Truth be told, my favorite part of the General Wayne Inn are the ghost stories. But you can't tell the story of America's longest operating restaurant and inn without telling the story of what brought this business to its end. And that's the tragic deaths associated with the inn, the murder of Jim Webb and then Felicia Moyes, who took her own life shortly thereafter. Today, the building is the Shabbat Center for Jewish Life. And it's nice to know that after all the tragedy of the General Wayne Inn, it's now being used for something positive in the community. Um, I thought about calling them to ask if there's been any spectral activity since they acquired the building, um, but I chickened out. They'd probably think I was some sort of wacko. Uh, maybe I am some sort of wacko. I love that even though the building changed hands, um, the Shabbat Center kept the General Wayne in on the side of the building. I love that they recognize the history of the structure that they now hold. You know, there's so much history along the main line, and so much of where I live is tied to the Revolutionary War and the founding of this nation. And mixed with that history is a bunch of twisted shit and twisted people like Guy Saleo. Here's hoping he spends the rest of his life behind bars. Before I go, I want to announce that this week I launched Twisted Philly merchandise. That's right, Twisters. Ladies' tees and men's tees are available on Threadless. You can check them out at twistedphillypodcast.threadless.com. Oh, we have baby clothes too, like onesies and little baby tees. Um, I heard onesies also make great dog tees. So if you try that out, let me know. If you grab any of the Twisted Philly gear, send me a picture, shoot it to me on Facebook or Twitter, or email me at twistedphilly@outlook.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of Twisted Philly. Ciao for now, Twisters.